You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So what will we talk about today? Um, today is a standalone sermon, as you have already heard. Um, the, the purpose or what we're going to be talking about today is a faith that is rooted in reality. And that is to say that our faith does correspond with reality. God has not given us something to believe in that contradicts what we see today, what was in the past. Okay, so our worldview, the Christian worldview, is uh, held up by history, logic, and so on, and by the Word of God. And we can see all of these things that have happened and that will happen. And the big idea that I want you to take away today is that if it happened in the past and God was faithful, it will happen in the future, and he will be faithful to that as well. So it's, it's not even a stretch. It's just very logical, and that's what our, historically what our faith has been uh, uh, held up by. So um, this is a topical sermon. Uh, I've used some selected passages just to kind of highlight my points um, I may or may not read all of them, and um, just because it might be a little bit tedious. Uh, for, for this church, normally we do what is called verse by verse. We, and, and this is, I think, the best way to do it, uh, just because you can really build a foundation of um, your understanding and just build upon it. You, you're just taking a book, and uh, in the, you know, as you progress in your Christian walk, you can look back and say, oh, I remember doing this book. I remember doing the book of 1 John. And then certain things will pop into your head where, oh, I remember the preacher said something about this. And the more you, you sit under a verse-by-verse style preaching, the more you can build your faith, the more you can build your understanding in his word. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, but this is topical. And topical does have a weakness. And one of the weaknesses is that sometimes people can come up here and preach their own um, virtues, their own ideas, they may or may not be biblical. And some of the examples that I have of sitting under people uh, that have taken some really bad sermons, like I've heard people talk about how explicitly about how women should wear hair coverings for the whole time. It's like, okay, that's great. Christian dress, that's a part of, you know, the Bible, but it's not everything. And they totally omit Christ. Uh, I've heard some popular uh, pastors preach about men's beard lengths and how they're so offended. Everyone should just take a razor and just shave because if you don't, you're, you know, you're not a believer and, and so on. And so it gets kind of muddy and uh, you're like, man, what, what is going on? And you leave the sermon feeling like, did I really learn anything? What, what can I take from that? You know, I guess I just buy a new razor, right? So, you know, today I'm, I'm really hoping that this can be helpful in, in growing our faith. And that's really my main objective um, the, the subject for today is prophecy, right? Um, we hear about prophecy. And uh, the questions that I would like us to kind of ask is, how does prophecy strengthen our faith? And what we're going to do is we're going to take a bird's eye view, looking at the prophetic pattern of what happened in the past. And if we have a little time, I'll talk a little bit about like the sign of the times, where we're going, right? What, what can we observe about our current uh, status in the world. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, uh, does the prophecy 
correlate to reality or can we just throw it away? And another uh, uh, great example is that the fact that even non-believers turn to prophecy. Have you ever thought about non-believers seeking mediums like Cleo? Call Cleo, she'll read your fortune, right? Or, hey, look at my palm. Oh, I see a long line. You're gonna have a great health and oh, you're gonna, your love life's gonna be like, hold on, right? That's such a, a, a vague type of prophecy. And then the other thing that people are really into is horoscopes, right? I see the stars are aligning and your life's gonna, be, hold on a second, you know? This is all like this crazy stuff that people are really into and they really buy into it. They really believe it. They put their hope in this. I'm gonna have a great love life this month. Okay, this is stuff that people are still seeking after. And I want us to ask the question, can we find it in God's word? And uh, lastly is uh, Nostradamus, these other prophets uh, where he's like super vague, 70% accuracy at times. And, uh, you know, the Bible's standard is not 70% accuracy. If anyone knows, it's 100% accuracy. And God says that if even one of the prophecies don't come true, don't, do not fear him, stone him, he's a liar. So we should not put our trust if the uh, History Channel comes out and says, oh, this, you know, Navajo prophecy says this, and, and like, don't put your trust in that, okay? That's the point. And then I want us to kind of get our minds into specifically what the Bible says about prophecy. Uh, interesting passage, Revelation 19, verse 10. And this is in the context of John uh, uh, being with an angel. And this is John, uh, John's interaction with the angel. He says, and I fell at his feet to worship him, the angel. And he said unto me, see thou do not, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So is the spirit of prophecy. This is, this is God laying, laying it out there. He knows the end from the beginning and therefore Christ is uh, the Alpha and the Omega. We learned that in the book of Revelation. He is in the past, he's in the future. He's from eternity past and he will be in eternity future. So furthermore, it's really to strengthen our faith. And this is John 14, 29. This is in the context of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And uh, he's laying out his death, burial and resurrection. So this is before he's to be crucified, the disciples didn't get it. And he gives us a, a long discourse about what will happen. And, and uh, he says this, John 14, 29. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye may believe. So he's saying, I'm telling you these things. The Bible lays it out for us that when it comes true, you will believe. Your faith will be strengthened. Okay, so if we can look around and see that certain things that the Bible lays out is coming to pass, okay, let's get serious. So it'll take you from a, just a, you know, a casual Christian, a Sunday Christian, an Easter Christmas Christian to a daily Christian because God is real, his word is true, and he's not playing around, okay? So I'm gonna also outline the points. So we're gonna go, we're gonna go through the points um, that I'm really going to uh, express what happened in the, in the past and where we're gonna go to the future. So first I wanna highlight the seed promise and specifically Genesis 3.15, where God gives the first gospel. 
Then we're going to go to the, the seed promise fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in Christ. He was the promised seed. Okay? Then we're going to look at the Jews being scattered, the nation of Israel being scattered, and then regathered, which is amazing. We're going to get to that. The sign of the time, so modern day, what does it look like? What's going on? And then at, at the conclusion, I'll restate my purpose and uh, really let you guys be thinking about the fact that faith, our faith specifically, corresponds with reality. And um, it is to leave here knowing that your faith is rooted in reality. The interesting thing about faith is that it's rooted in the past. Have you ever thought about that? Faith is past tense. It's something that you have believed in the past. Those are your roots. What it does to you in the present is peace. So your faith will produce a peace because you have rested upon God's word. That's specifically where our faith is rooted. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when we hear the words of God, we believe it and our faith grows and then we have peace because God has actually made peace with us by his cross. So he sent Jesus Christ into the world. And even though we were still sinners at that time, he died for us and he made peace with us. We didn't make peace with him. God's claim is I have made peace with you, even though you were undeserving. And then at the same time, that current present peace produces the fruit of hope. Now, hope is in the future. Hope is something that we do not yet have. And the Bible, every time it talks about hope, usually it speaks about our hope in resurrection. The fact that Christ rose from the dead, likewise, it's the same picture for us that we one day, because of our faith in him, death is not the end of us we also will be risen from the dead. We will have a new eternal body and we will be with Christ in an eternal state uh, in a physical body. We were meant, we are souls that are in this body, but we were meant to have a body. It's unnatural for us to just be uh, ethereal or in a soul kind of state. So, you know, that picture of people floating in the clouds and playing little harps and looking like little naked babies and diapers or whatever, take that picture out of your mind. That's not us. We will be here on, on literal earth with our literal king in physical bodies, new glorified bodies. So the Bible kind of expresses this as like our current bodies are like these little tents flapping in the wind. And when we are resurrected, we'll have a building. So, so he is comparing our current bodies as tents and we do so much to dress these tents up, right? We, we inject Botox and we, you know, do surgeries and all kinds of stuff to look younger, to have the appearance that we're not dying, you know? Then the, the, the truth is that these are just tents. They're temporary, but one day we're gonna have a building. It's gonna be strong and it's gonna be a promise that Christ gives to us. And we're gonna maybe hopefully touch on that a little bit because uh, believe it or not, the world currently is uh, uh, really pushing the anti-aging. We, uh, there are claims from the world saying we uh, are close to discovering how to gain immortality which is super interesting. So um, I hope that kind of sparks some interest. So uh, before we get into the seed promise, I'd like to just pray. Um, if you could bow your head. <sighs> Father God, we're so grateful to be here this morning. Uh, Father, there's so much to, uh, to teach and to learn. And I pray that I just step out of the way. I pray that your spirit take over, Father, because uh, uh, it is all for your glory. May I decrease that you might increase, Father. I pray that you would just take away and remove 
the anxiety, the worry, the other thoughts of the audience, Father, that they would focus on you and your son. Uh, Father, we're so grateful uh, that you have spoken to us in the past and that you will speak to us today. Um, Father, we, we uh, commit this time to you. I pray that it would be fruitful, and we know, resting on your word, that it will be fruitful. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's get into it. Ready? So Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. Um, this is God first cursing. Uh, well, maybe I should give a little bit of context. Uh, we find ourselves in the Garden of Eden. This is right after the fall of mankind. Uh, man disobeyed God, and um, God curses Satan first, then the woman, then man. Actually, not man, the ground, which is also very interesting. So he's speaking to Satan, the enemy right now. And this is what God says, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, interesting. So God gives the first gospel in the garden. This is the seed promise. And you can trace this through Genesis. Um, we will take a little bit of a look at it. Um, Matthew, actually chapter one, uh, the first like 18 to 20 verses is all about the genealogy of Jesus. And you can literally trace the seed promise from Adam to Jesus. Uh, I mean, the Jews were meticulous at keeping records. So we have that today. Um, but going back to the garden, um, man, man sinned and sin requires judgment. God has to be just. He doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. He has to be just. And when there is transgression, when we break the law, what do we expect? Judgment. And so he judges. And the thing is, even though he gives the first gospel, there's actually even more of a picture of the gospel in the first uh, three chapters of Genesis. It's very interesting. So if you recall, when man uh, sinned, uh, what did they do? Do you remember? They hid and they covered themselves with fig leaves, which is very, it's a very interesting picture because this could uh, really be a picture of man covering himself or uh, with his own way to get to God, to be in his presence because he's naked. Us as human beings, we know that we have sinned. There's a guilt conscience in all of us. And so when we appear before God, we feel naked, so we wanna hide. And mankind with their own religion, their own works, dresses themselves up to be presentable to God. And if you look at all the religions of the world, they, they're very um, uh, common. And the common thread is uh, you have to do something to get to God. By your good works, you can appease God, right? That's the common thread of religion. And that's man's works to get to God. And the interesting thing is leaves, they wither. They're, they're not meant to really be a covering like that. And so does anyone know what happens next in the story? What happens next is that God makes for them clothes, but these clothes are not made out of leaves. They're, they're made from animal skins. So the interesting thing is God had to sacrifice an innocent animal to cover man. Does this kind of spark anything in you? The fact that it, it pictures Christ so perfectly, the first gospel in Genesis, the first three chapters, he literally takes an innocent animal and sacrifices just like he takes his innocent son and sacrifices him so he can cover us and he can cover us in his righteousness. It's an amazing picture in the first three chapters of Genesis. 
You can just read that and come to faith in Christ. Boom. Um, moving a little bit forward, uh, I'd like to kind of jump a little bit ahead to uh, Abraham. So we heard of the seed promise that came in. Now it kind of traces its line through Genesis. You know, we, we see the flood. Uh, we see that finally it lands on Abraham and, and God chooses to work with a man named Abraham. He takes him out of uh, idolatry and he makes certain promises to Abraham. And uh, let me just read Genesis 12, one through three. This is God speaking. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you or curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is God speaking to Abraham and he gives him these promises. Uh, Notice here that the only condition is that Abraham gets out of his country and Abraham taking that step of faith, he gets out of his country and specifically, he came from Ur of the Chaldees, which was notorious for idols and idol worship. So God takes him out of idolatry and separates him unto himself. And he says, I'm going to work with you and I'm going to work with your family. And there's an interesting last kind of statement. He says, uh, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And uh, just kind of keep that in mind because we're really going to touch on this today. So through him and his family, the, the earth will be blessed. Um, I want to move a little bit forward to his son, another typology, and I'll kind of conclude the typologies here. I know it's, hopefully it's not getting a little too heavy, uh, but if you uh, were a kid and you like to like, you know, just take a little teacup, did you ever have a tea party with your dad? Uh, and just, you know, take a little sip and, you know, uh, but... Today, it's not going to be a tea party. It's going to be more like, uh, you know, after football practice, they'd bring out the hoses and you just stick your mouth in the hose and, you know, you got water shooting out of your nose and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hope it's going to, you know, be interesting that you're going to have, you're going to have to drink from a water hose today. Um, going back to Isaac, uh, this is another picture of the gospel. Most people kind of read this story of Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain and, and uh, kind of scratching their head like, whoa, God is so mean and strange and why, what, what? And uh, let me just kind of uh, read it and then I'll bring um, the gospel into this. Uh, so this is right after or as Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, okay? This is Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what's the picture here? Like this strange Abraham going up the mountain with his son to sacrifice him. Like that seems so weird. Uh, But really it pictures Christ. Again, another typology. And God loves to write with human history and with people's lives to show uh, a theological pictures to us so that we we might learn. Um, The interesting thing about Isaac is that most people think he was like eight years old, like a little kid. 
if you do the calculations, right, he's closer to 30. This is the uh, faithful father taking the beloved son up a mountain. The interesting thing is this was the mountain of Moriah, which is the same mountain that Christ was crucified on. And the interesting thing, what was on Isaac's back, if you recall, it was wood. He was taking wood to, to up the mountain to be sacrificed, just like Christ bore the cross, the wooden cross, up the mountain to be sacrificed. And uh, this happened, it says specifically, on the third day, he took Isaac up, which is so interesting because if you think about it, this was Abraham's thinking. He knew that God had promised to multiply his lineage through Isaac. He says, not through Ishmael, through Isaac. This is the seed promise. Just think about that. He says, I will do it through Isaac. And so now God's telling me, okay, hold on. I got to sacrifice my son. All right. Let's take him up the mountain. And Abraham's thinking is this. If I sacrifice Isaac and he promised me that it was through Isaac, the only answer is resurrection. He has to resurrect. Like I'm, I'm going to sacrifice him, but okay, God, fulfill your promises. You've been faithful this far. And so Abraham was counting on resurrection for God's promise to be true. What a picture. And uh, because of Abraham's faithfulness, of course, God stops it because God does not demand uh, human sacrifice, but uh, uh, he stops it. And uh, he once again reinstates that, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. And you're going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Wow. So all these typologies, and I could, go, I could go on and on. I mean, the Old Testament is filled with shadows of the crucifixion and the life of Christ. It's amazing. Um, they really show the gospel and really they point to the revealing of the Messiah who will fulfill all these things for us. How is he going to crush the, the serpent's head? Okay. Um, the other interesting thing about predicting the Messiah, not only through typologies, there's literal predictions um, about his life, his ministry, his death. Uh, David, through Psalms and the Messianic Psalms, uh, they're called, is where he's uh, foreshadowing by the Spirit. David wrote Psalms, King David, and he foreshadows something about Christ, either something about his second coming or his first coming. And uh, uh, if you look at Psalm 22, and I won't read it, uh, but Psalm 22 predicts his crucifixion where it says, they pierce my hands and my feet. All the strong bulls encompass around me. They want my blood. They gamble for my clothing. This, this uh, Psalm 22 is often referred to as the x-ray of the cross. This is what Christ is feeling in his moments of anguish on the cross. It's an amazing telling of his life. Uh, Isaiah 53 also outlines the fact that he will be a suffering servant. He will, uh, by his stripes, we are healed. A very famous passage um, really points to Christ and what he's done. And then um, the interesting thing about prophecy too, predicting Christ coming into the, into the uh, world, is that Daniel, God through Daniel, really lays it out. And we, not too long ago, finished the book of Daniel. Um, so I'll just kind of give that to you. It's Daniel uh, 9, 24 to 26. And uh, it goes, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, that's Israel, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint the most holy place. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be 70 weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in time, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay, weird. What's going on here? So we can actually correlate this in time where he says about the 62 weeks, it talks about the rebuilding of the temple. They're going to rebuild in hard times. And um, in D groups, fairly recently, we did the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. And these are the uh, post-exilic prophets where they speak about um, basically the rebuilding of uh, Jerusalem and the temple and the walls. And um, if, you, if you take from the rebuilding of the temple when it was rebuilt and you count 62 seven, so 62 times seven, it gets you about, uh, I think, close to like 383. Uh, don't quote me on that. My math is not that great up here. Um, but some odd years, you can actually calculate the date from the rebuilding of the temple to literally when Jesus was uh, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. Yeah, it's that accurate. So the word of God is very accurate in predicting when he's about to come and the Jews ought to have been looking for, for him. And have you ever thought about how did the wise men know to send gifts to Jesus? What, what like, how did that happen? Well, it literally happened because they, they heard it from Daniel. Daniel was from Babylon. The wise men came from that region and they literally, Daniel was the one who sent the gifts to Jesus Christ. He literally prepared the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh. And it's an amazing uh, thing that they took prophecy literally. They just did a basic math and they came to that conclusion. So it's an incredible thing. So what's the point of the seed promise? Well, the word of God outlines that he will provide a savior and he'll restore mankind. Remember the uh, eternal righteousness and so on um, through himself. And uh, when we look at that, we see that it was fulfilled. We see that God promised the savior, the savior came just as the Bible predicted. There's no, there's no mystery here. Uh, and the first point is reality uh, confirms prophecy. And I, I hope that you come to that conclusion as well, that we see that it really happens and it, it uh, corresponds to prophecy. And God says that when it does happen, you will believe. And so that ought to strengthen our faith. Like, wow, it really did happen. So we get to the next point. And now that's the seed promise fulfilled. We talked about how Christ literally came. And uh, for this portion, I'm going to look at some statistics or some probabilities. Did you know, oh, they have it up there. Let me see. So did you know that you have a 1 in 15,300 chance of being struck by lightning? Okay, it doesn't seem that likely. Have, has anyone in here been struck by lightning? Raise your hand. No hands. Okay, interesting. So the, the chances of being struck by lightning are very small. Uh, the interesting thing is uh, there was a, a guy 
Erdeshem, who calculated, who, who did the math, and he calculated that for Christ, any man, any man to fulfill just eight of the messianic prophecies in his life, the likely chance is one in 10 to the 17th power. That is 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Eight prophecies. Uh, you might be asking yourself, well, did he just fulfill eight prophecies? No, he didn't. So going back to the lightning example, to be strike, struck by lightning, oh, hold on. Let me back it up a little bit uh, to kind of uh, paint the picture. Um, so the 10 to the 17th power, you know, it just maybe in your head, you're like, wow, that's a big uh, number, but that's about it. Okay, cool. Um, the interesting thing is if, if I kind of make it more real, and that's my point here, if you took 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars, they're about like this big, and uh, did you know that it would cover the state of Texas two feet deep? You'd be walking through that many silver dollars. And then I'd say to you, go pick out the one silver dollar that, um, that has a hole in it or whatever. Uh, could you do it? Probability is no, you wouldn't, never. State of Texas. So going back to it, being struck by lightning seven times is one in 10 to the 28th power. In your lifetime to be struck by lightning uh, seven times. And I pick seven because it's a nice round number, right? So once again, Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. Uh, the, what he fulfilled according to Erdeshem was 456 Old Testament prophecies about the life of Christ. And so 48 prophecies, just 48, a conservative number would be 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros behind that. And in statistics, um, 10 to the 50th power is considered impossible. Statisticians say, that's it. Like once you reach that, it's like, it's impossible. And he fulfilled 456 Old Testament prophecies. That's amazing. And um, I'd like to say today that, the, you know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And truly you are a fool. If you look at the statistics, you look at the probabilities and you come to the conclusion that this isn't true, the Bible declares you're a fool. It's, it's right in front of you. You can't miss it. And so no matter how maybe dumb or, or ugly or poor you might feel, you're not a fool. The Bible declares today that if you've come to faith in Christ, you are not a fool because it's overwhelming the evidence and the statistics and the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. It's incredible in, through his life. Moving on. Matthew chapter one, and I won't read it. It's the beginning up to like, I think verse 17. Um, that's a, the, the next one. Um, gives the genealogy of Christ. So if you want to do it now or go home and do it, you can trace the seed promise. You can trace where God put uh, the seed and he kept passing it along. And Satan through time always tried to destroy it. He tried to thwart God's plan of the savior. And if you recall in, uh, in Egypt, what did he do? Through uh, the Pharaoh, he tried to have all the uh, Israelite children be killed, all the male children. Once again, through Herod's time, he does the same pattern. And he continues to attack 
the nation that God promised to work with, the nation of Israel. So, but we know that the seed promise, God was successful in bringing it forth in Jesus Christ. Um, now, his birth and mission. Let me read Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear and take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if you want to look at uh, fulfilled prophecies, Matthew, which was primarily written to the Jews, um, is the only gospel that does this, will quote back to this prophecy will, was fulfilled because the Jews would have been very acquainted with the, with, uh, the Old Testament and the Torah. Um, so Ma Matthew always alludes back to a prophecy that was fulfilled. But we see that he will save uh, his people from their sins, the mission of Christ. Now, when Christ was teaching here on earth, uh, he kind of, uh, he wasn't very nice to the religious leaders. We'll just say it that way. Um, he rebukes them because as he was teaching in their midst, uh, they continuously discredited him. Um, and we'll kind of get, get more of that. Uh, and they uh, often would say, give us a sign after all these healings and after all these things and the fruit of his teaching and so on, that wasn't a sign enough. And they continued to, well, give us another sign. Well, give us another sign. Um, and this is what Jesus says about looking for the sign of the times. And we'll kind of talk about that. Matthew 16, one to four. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So kind of restating that they're asking for a sign. And Jesus is so clear that you ought to have known the time of my visitation. And remember, we talked back about the book of Daniel, how accurate that was about when he came into Jerusalem. They, they should have been taking that. And you might think, well, maybe they weren't that scholarly. Like maybe they were a little bit ignorant. Well, there's a, a tradition that in order, in order to become a Pharisee, you'd have to pass a test and they would take a nail and uh, drive it through the Torah. And you have to know every letter that nail went through. And people could actually get this. They memorized their scriptures and yet they did not see it. They didn't take it literally, which was very interesting, but they should have known uh, the time of his coming. And he says that the only sign given to them will be the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is resurrection, death out of life. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three, three days and three nights, death, many people interpret it as he did literally die in the fish. The fish came to shore, spit him out. He was resurrected. 
the sign of a resurrection will be given to you. And that was the sign given to us. And um, by the end of Jesus's ministry, he had a lot to say about prophecy, very interestingly enough. And he tells the disciples to look for certain signs. And I just, I, I can't go through Matthew 24 today, unfortunately. Um, maybe someone has a sigh of relief, like, oh, great. You know, we don't have to go through that. But um, there is a mega sign and that'll kind of like lead me into the next section of what we're gonna go through. The mega sign that Jesus said was, um, and I'll, I'll read it. It's Matthew 24, 32 to 34. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. So you might be asking yourself, what fig tree thing is he talking about here? And the interesting thing is um, Matthew and Mark both record this really interesting um, uh, event that took place where Jesus came up to a fig tree before the season of figs and finding no fruit on it, he says, uh, okay, cursed are you and you will no longer bring figs ever again. And uh, the next day, the disciples passed by it and it withered and they were so shocked. They're like, whoa, uh, man, how quickly it withered away. And uh, you might be asking yourself, well, that's really weird. Is Jesus kind of bipolar here? Like, why did he get so mad at the fig tree? Um, the interesting thing about uh, the fig tree is that trees are often uh, compared to nations. And the fig tree in this example is a uh, representation of Israel. Israel is the fig tree. And Jesus came to Israel looking for fruit and he found no fruit. And so he cursed the fig tree. And in this prophecy, he says, when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, meaning it's in season, it's coming back, right? You know, it is near. So at this point, you know, I might hear an objection. Well, Christ happened 2000 years ago. And people always said that Christ would return, but he hasn't. Can you give me some modern day proof of Christ's words? Like what, you know, I know that that happened in the past. It was all in Israel in the past, whatever. But what about today? Today, you know, it's whatever. We have some Christians here and there, but you know, how is it relevant for my life, right? You hear that a lot, relevance, relevant preaching. So Let's uh, observe kind of what happened in the past and what's going on today. So hopefully I'm kind of running short on time, but maybe we can look at it or maybe I can kind of skip through the passages. So I might have to do that, um, unfortunately. But Deuteronomy, and what I wanted to do was get into the next section of Israel being scattered and regathered. This is another prophecy that we can look at in the past and we can look at modern day, what's going on. So Deuteronomy uh, 28, 63 to 65 uh, really outlines the fact that one of the penalties, so this is Moses, so for the context, this is Moses on a mountain. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And he's telling all the people what will happen to them when they enter the land, how they're gonna fail God, how God's gonna treat them, but God is still faithful. It's really interesting, but he, he tells them basically that you will fail and I will scatter you. And at the very end, I'll just 
read uh, 65. And among these nations, you shall find no, no rest and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. So this is not a good state. And the promised scattering literally did happen in twice. So if we look at prophecy, oftentimes there's a, uh, a pattern. It, it repeats itself. And the first time we know that uh, during the, uh, uh, right after they entered the land, they uh, conquered, they didn't conquer the whole land, but they conquered some and they, they got a big portion of the land. But after a, uh, a time of decline, Israel started turning to idols. The nation was split, northern uh, Israel, southern Judah, and they went into idolatry full force. And God constantly by his prophets kept saying, turn back to me, turn back to me, and they wouldn't. And so eventually God pronounces, okay, you haven't turned back to me. Uh, you will be taken captive. And they were taken captive by Babylon in uh, it was like 597 BC. So, and uh, the Northern kingdom was taken by Assyria, Assyria 721 BC. So God was very faithful to his negative promises. When you do evil, when you depart from me, my promise is that you will be punished. And that's exactly what he does to Israel. And that's exactly what he does to us today. Uh, us as believers, we know that we can rest our faith in Christ um, and we have salvation. But uh, if we sin and we continue to willfully sin, we'll, we'll not lose our salvation because God is faithful. He has put a deposit of his Holy Spirit in us. But what he promised to do is he will discipline us. He will punish us and we will not get by with it. We will not get away with it. And um, it's very interesting how he uh, really put that through the past. Um, I, what I wanted to do was kind of compare Deuteronomy with Ezekiel. It's a, the passage of Ezekiel, uh, what God promised about the scattering. And unfortunately, I should have maybe planned for this a little bit, but uh, the time is already, I think I have like 10 minutes and I, I don't think I can get through all these verses. So uh, Adrian or Mark, I, if you want, you can just project it just to kind of have it up there. But uh, the point was in Deuteronomy 29.4 is that God says that I have not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So even though they walked through the wilderness with God 40 years, they saw miracles, they saw manna, they saw parting of the Red Sea, they still didn't have eyes. Miracles don't bring you to faith, interestingly enough. And we read of another time in the great tribulation and revelation where there's gonna be supernatural things happening all the time, but the Bible says, and they did not repent. Supernatural events do not bring you to faith. It's his word that brings you to faith. So don't wait for a burning bush uh, to come to faith. You have to come to faith today. Um, I, I have to skip a little bit to Ezekiel uh, and maybe I'll just paraphrase a little bit to kind of get the point. Ezekiel 36 talks about how God is going to scatter them um, but what he's going to do for his name's sake, for his glory, is that he will give them a new heart and a new spirit. That's the famous passage of, I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And this is the new covenant that was promised to Israel. The interesting thing is, after the, uh, the resurrection of Christ, we as the church have entered into this promise before Israel has, which is very interesting 
So we can take part in that new heart, new spirit. We want to walk in God's uh, steps and righteousness because of what he has done in us. I, I, I do want to, um, at, at this point, there is a, a little bit of a longer passage in Ezekiel that God really shows what, how he's going to regather Israel. Um, this is a very famous passage of the Valley of the Dry Bones. And uh, I'll quickly read it uh, and get my last points across. So this is Ezekiel um, with the Lord. So I'll read. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say, And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And um, the next step, he kind of prophesies. He sees all these things. And the interesting thing is he sees bone come to his bone, and then flesh comes upon these skeletons. And uh, they stand up. And then he says in a second part, prophesy to the wind that breath comes in them. And so there's this progressive gathering. It's very visual. You can kind of imagine it. Um, The gathering of the bones, they come together, flesh forms, and then breath enters into them. And then in Ezekiel 37, 11 to 14, he gives the interpretation. So one of the other things about prophecy is oftentimes, if you just read a little bit further, We're not left to our own devices to kind of interpret it. Oftentimes, you just have to read just the next couple of verses and he gives you the interpretation. Um, And he talks about how the bones are the house of Israel that's dried up and these bones are talking. So we know it's it's uh, it's not literal bones, but these bones are the dried up house of Israel. They're talking amongst themselves and they're saying, uh, we are cut off, our hope is lost and so on. But God promises that he will regather them uh, from the nations that he has spread them out because God scattered them. So God's saying, I'll regather them. And uh, here's the question that we've been asking. Does prophecy correlate to reality? Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, we know that there was, uh, they were taken. They were not necessarily scattered. I mean, even though they were dispersed as slaves, but for the most part, they were gathered in Babylon. And after um, Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon after 70 years, just like uh, the prophecy was stated by Jeremiah, they were let go back into Israel. And that's where we read Nehemiah and Ezra, where they rebuild the temple. Okay. And uh, what happens? They rebuild the temple. We know that Jesus comes, so they're gathered into Israel because why? For the purpose that the Messiah was going to come to Israel. So there needed to be Israel. There needed to be a temple. And it's very interesting because in Daniel's time, you would have despaired. You would have said, God, there is no Israel. There's no way we're ever going to go back to our our country again and build a temple. It was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar 70 years ago. It's all like ruins. Imagine today, like New York City gets totally devastated And then 
we're taken away and then we come back 70 years later and we rebuild stuff? Like that's unheard of. And that's exactly what happens. And uh, the interesting thing is the Messiah comes into the temple, he cleanses the temple and there was many things that had to be fulfilled and uh, there had to be a temple, there had to be an Israel in its land for it to be fulfilled and God laid it all out. God did it. And uh, this is how Israel responded to Jesus. The Jews reject the Messiah, Matthew 12, 22 to 24. And this is the big, the big uh, climax. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Whoa. So what are they saying here? Um, they're actually saying, when they say, could this man be the son of David, what they're referring to is, uh, in uh, Jewish tradition, they thought there was gonna be two messiahs. They thought there was gonna be a suffering servant and a king. And they didn't get that they're the one and the same. And the interesting thing is the people saw all these signs and the Bible lists out, hey, these are the signs that accompany the Messiah. He's going to cleanse the lepers. He's going to heal the lame. He's going to do all these things. And he had all the qualifications. And the people asked, is this the king? Is this the reigning king? And the Pharisees, once again, who were very versed in the Torah said, no, this guy can't be it. And uh, this is the unpardonable sin. This is where Jesus said, uh, you're never going to be forgiven for this. Like this is unpardonable. And that generation Interestingly enough, in 70 AD, Titus the Roman came and destroyed Jerusalem as Jesus predicted. So another uh, prophecy that correlates to reality. From this transgressions, the Jews were scattered. And I'm, I'm gonna have to, unfortunately, we can't get to the sign of the times. I just would like to uh, go a little bit through uh, uh, modern day and then I'll end it. Um, so you can enjoy Mother's Day. But the Jews were scattered in 70 AD. And once again, another wandering in the wilderness occurred. But it wasn't 40 years. It was close to 2,000 years. So the history of the Jews, um, after the dispersion, they were uh, brutally murdered by the Romans. Uh, millions of them were, were killed. Um, the Catholic Church also persecuted the Jews. We have some very interesting quotes uh, from some of our church fathers uh, that did not understand uh, Israel's role in uh, prophecy. And we have, um, if you can put up on the slide, Adrian, Martin Luther. So great reformer. He's done many great things. Uh, he stapled the 99 thesis on the Catholic church doors. Um, so he's had great contributions to the church, but he did not understand the, uh, the Jewish role. And this is what he said about the Jews. He said, they are nothing but thieves and robber, robbers who daily eat no morsel and wear no thread of clothing, which they have not stolen. And then it goes on. So this was his viewpoint. And actually, um, if you, uh, has anyone heard of Mein Kampf? So Hitler actually used some of Martin Luther's writings about how bad and terrible the Jews are to persecute the Jews. So this is all under God's provision, under God's judgment of Israel. And the very interesting thing is someone asked me to, uh, a while ago, uh, how can you prove that God is real or whatever? And I said, the Jews. I said, 
well, why were they so persecuted? And I said, do you remember when Christ was on the cross? Do you remember what the Jews said? They said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And they pronounced the curse upon themselves. And we see that history correlates to that prophecy. Um, John Calvin, uh, next slide, please. Uh, same thing. He, uh, when it came to prophecy, um, he did not know. He said the book of Revelation, well, we should just put it down. And he was also very skeptical of the Jews. He said uh, in another quote, it's not this one, but he said, uh, uh, there's no way that God is going to regather the Jews. It's impossible. Like he had that viewpoint. There's no way. And he said, the Jews are rotten, unbending, stiff neck, deserves that they should be oppressed according without measure or end that they, in their mes- uh, that they uh, die in their misery without pity from anyone. Interesting. John Calvin, once again, great contributor to the faith, but he did not understand um, God's prophetic pattern and that he is going to regather Israel. They didn't believe. So what was the land of Israel like in the 19th and 20th centuries? It was desolate. Mark Twain, uh, next slide, Adrian. He said that uh, he visited in uh, 18, what was it, 67? He visited and he said, uh, not even, it's a desolation here, not even imagine can grace without the pomp of life and action. He said, it's nothing, it's barren. If you read what he said about it, it's a desert. There's less than 100,000 people in the whole land. So it was nothing. It was desolate, just like the Bible predicted. Uh, and I'm, I'm concluding here. Isaiah 66, 8 says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. The interesting thing is, Isaiah is saying, can a nation be born in a day? This is the regathering. We know uh, that May 14th, 1948, after World War II, the nation of Israel was gathered from bones. Uh, Adrian, if you could go to the bones uh, slide. That's where they came out of. Does this not paint such a visceral picture of dry bones? They were literally killed and they came from the graveyard into a land. They had nothing um, as you can see, the, the top left picture is just them in a, a big valley of burial mounds. That's where they came out of. A few years later, uh, 1946, World War II uh, was over. 1948, two years later, they had a nation again. Now imagine America was taken over. We were all uh, scattered. And then 2000, you know, m- minus a few years, come back into our land with, get this, not only was Hebrew a dead language, which was resurrected. Hebrew, they came back with their culture. They came back with their writing. They came back with their religion. And now today, um, they are a great nation. They are one of the greatest in the Middle East. Um, I had a Jewish guy today send me one of, some of their contributions. And it's basically, uh, there's 15 million Jews in the world. They contribute, which is uh, 0.01 percent of the world population. They've contributed 25% of all uh, um, scientific findings. This small group of people has such a huge effect on the whole world. They've given us, God through the Jewish people has given us the Bible, has given us the prophets, and has promised to regather them. And we see that today. They are, they have, I mean, 
I could go on and on. There's opposition to them, the six-day war. And there's so many wars that have happened. I think uh, they might've been put up there. Um, I mean, every 10 years, they're under attack. And to this day, Israel is surrounded by uh, enemies that want to kill them. Rockets today are being fired on Mother's Day through Israel and through Gaza and through Iran and so on, through their enemies. So we literally see it today. Um, I'll, I'll kind of wrap up here. Their military and uh, Andai has put up some, uh, uh, some of the uh, headlines, but they have some of the strongest military, which is amazing. They came from Bones 75 years later. Now, remember, today is May 14th. Today is their 75th birthday, which when I was doing this, I thought it was mind-blowing. I, I, I came up upstairs to tell my wife, honey, do you know the day I'm speaking about the Jews is their birthday? I didn't plan for that. I didn't know what I was really going to talk about. Um, I thought it was amazing. Uh, but they have a strong military. They have technological innovations. And they're, um, they have a drip technology that turned the desert into, uh, into a uh, fertile ground. I mean, they're exporting technology like, like nobody's business. Um, and the interesting thing is their outlook, even though they've contributed so much to humanity, is that they're hated by all the nations. They are one of the least liked countries under North Korea, Iran. Really, 15 million Jews, the size, their land is the size of New Jersey. I mean, there's 20 million people in the state of Florida alone. And they're hated and they're contributing so much. Remember what God said, by you, all the nations shall be blessed. And if they haven't contributed enough, out of the nation of Israel came our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. So unfortunately, at this point, I have to end. Um, I, I really didn't think it was going to be this long. Um, but I would just like to end with a, a high note. Uh, once again, my purpose was that our faith is rooted in history, that it, once we've come to faith, we can build our faith through this word, that it does correlate to reality. It brings us a peace because we have peace with God and it produces a hope for future expectation of what is to come. So I'll leave you with this idea that in Noah's day, the way of salvation was through a wooden ark. In our day, the way of salvation is through a wooden cross. Do you know Jesus today? So I'll just end with a prayer. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.